Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm talking to Brad Rutherford, local Seattle judge and skilled pilot of the modern deck Abzan Company. Brad not only won a Star City Games 5K with it, he won the admiration of Magic players around the world with his fun and challenging deck. Brad has played in over 1,000 sanctioned games of Magic and has logged over 400 with Abzan Company and a 70% win rate. When Brad's not crushing noobs like me at local events, he's judging as an L2. Brad cares deeply about the community and contributes in every way he can. Whenever I've seen Brad judging at a PT or a pre-TQ, he's giving it his all. I hope you enjoy my Snack Time Deck Tech with Brad Rutherford. Hi everyone, thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and today I am sitting here with Brad Rutherford. Brad, how are you? Oh, I'm just great. Thanks. We are sitting on your kitchen table right now. We are actually at my kitchen table. Uh, Magic cards are everywhere. It's great. That's right. We've got magic cards everywhere. I promised Brad that I would bring over some goofy snacks. And so, we've got some strange snacks here. I got something salty, savory, as well as something sweet. Can you describe it for us, Brad? Yeah, so there's a bag which is indiscriminate. Uh, it says hot and spicy cracker, but it has a picture of a fish. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what kind of cracker would taste like a fish, but I guess we'll find out. The fish looks like a knockoff Magikarp. Yeah, it's very Pokemon-esque. And then we have, <laughs> uh, we have some strawberry-filled koala cookies. I already had one. It was great. <laughs> yeah, so they're koalas and they're strawberry frosting-filled. So, yeah. Koalas, delicious. <laughs> They're all very Pokemon-esque. Yeah, I think it will taste better than, you know, real koala or whatever a Pokemon would taste like. <laughs> and you were asking me earlier, Brad, about what you thought Pokemon would taste like. Yeah, I'm curious. I don't know much about the, the IP, but do the people in Pokemon world, do they eat the Pokemon? Or are there other normal animals as well? Yeah, that's very odd. I just, I've never seen them eat any food. Yeah, I know it's a kid's show. But uh, I'm just curious, are they like, uh, uh, what are they doing with all these extra Pokemon? Right? Yeah. yeah. It seems like they could eat them if they wanted to. <laughs> Have an oddish salad. Yeah. Uh, some of them are huge, right? Like some yeah. of them are like the size of a building. Yeah. And, um, you know, people in the real world, we hunt all the megafauna. So, <laughs> I feel like there are there should be fewer and fewer of those as time goes on in the Pokemon world. <laughs> Too funny. Well, we're also here and we're joined by Zoe the Pug. So, if we hear some funny snorting noises, that's Zoe the Pug walking around. Yeah, she's a dog. Uh, she's a little um, zealous and agitated, uh, but she seems to be okay now. Well, we've also got a 15-year-old cat that's totally conked out. Yeah, his name's Xander. He's a big beach ball and he's super friendly. Very cute and very friendly. Well, Brad, thank you so much for having me today. I just wanted to talk to you about you as a Magic player and you as a judge, and then also some modern decks that you brewed up and really put the work into testing. So, why don't we just start at the beginning? Brad, where did you grow up and when did you start playing Magic? So, I'm probably a bit older than most of your audience. I'm 37 in a couple of days. Um, I grew up in the Midwest, Central Illinois, just south of Chicago. Wasn't much to do out there. I latched on to comic books in the game store. And then uh, in 94, I was a freshman in high school. Uh, I met a couple of guys through uh, the theater department. They introduced me to Magic the Gathering. Magic, originally for me, was something that we did after Dungeons & Dragons sessions. Mm -hmm. So, uh, we would game all day on Saturday with Dungeons & Dragons. We would order a pizza at night. And then we would play kitchen table multiplayer magic with basically our collections. Our collections were our decks. We uh, we didn't understand strategy then. We weren't involved in the uh, the tournaments, the budding tournament scene in 1994. We um, we built 150 card decks. They were unsleeved. Uh, we always ganged up on Tommy because he had a Leviathan in his deck. Even though uh, Leviathan's pretty bad by today's standards, <laughs> we were very scared of the ten ten as you know fourteen year old, fifteen year old kids. Wasn't Leviathan reprinted in like M thirteen or something like that? It was, uh, I believe, it was in Time Spiral. Okay, I, I think it was one of the time shifted reprints. Okay, uh, I was a little excited to see that for nostalgia purposes, but uh, it's 
it's a pretty bad card if you look at it. <laughs> it, it does not hold up to today's standards of um, 10 mana creatures. Yeah, talking to some other uh, magic personalities reminiscing about the past, um, I would always ask people, is like, do you still have any of your dual lands? And they're like, no, we didn't actually value those very much. We valued like Shivan Dragon, and Shivan Dragon has made an appearance again in M15 and what, Origins? Or am I getting... It's one of those new uh, core, new wish core sets, right? Yeah, it was in the... Um what is it? What is it called? It's like the supplemental beginners set. That's right. Yeah, it, it's not actually. Free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the fr- the the free boosters that they give out to uh, people who learn how to play Magic. Pretty sweet. Yeah, you mentioned that dual lands were not valued. Then uh, you're absolutely correct. I I had many dual lands, and we uh, I traded them into the store as a 14 and 15 year old person. I wasn't aware of their value. I mean, nobody really was, but yeah. uh, I would trade them into the store at $5 a piece and they would give me two booster packs in exchange. Wow. MSRP was two forty nine a pack then. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that was a good deal for somebody who, you know, had a paper out for a job. Yeah. Very cool. So, who did you really learn magic from? Just your friends? Yeah. Uh, we played casual for probably uh, two and a half, maybe three years. It was 97 when... Um, I really got introduced to tournament magic. Uh, I was, I was by definition a very casual player for the first three years. And then, uh, 97 came around. That was right around Tempest. Uh, Tempest came out. Um, I read some articles in Scry magazine mm-hmm. or Inquest, possibly one of the two. I, I don't know which. And, uh, introduced me to the red Sly deck, which was, uh, popularized on the professional circuit, had Curse Scrolls. I was very excited. Yeah. Uh, I spent a ton of money putting that deck together because Curse Scrolls were $20 in, you know, 1997 money. Mm-hmm. That was a lot for a teenager. Yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, 99 was when I really started putting effort into things. Um, I just played LGS Magic for, for two years and then uh, I started traveling to uh, PTQs. Started going to PTQs and states and uh, regionals, uh, tried to qualify and uh, I only played, you know, the best decks at that point. Uh, so 1999 was really like my turning point in Magic. Very cool. So you were playing in tournaments and this was the old PTQ system. Yeah, yeah. Uh, PTQs were, uh, depending on where you went, they were somewhat large. Um, I lived in the halfway point between St. Louis and Chicago in uh, downstate Illinois. So it was a three-hour drive to either location and uh PTQs averaged, uh, I'm not really sure. It was probably like 100-ish, maybe 120, 130 people around that range. So, they were big tournaments um, for me, for somebody who only played LGS Magic up until that point. And then they were very competitive. Uh, I've, I've looked at my Planeswalker Point history before, and I've noticed that I've played you know, people who have won GPs. I played a lot of the, the Madison, Wisconsin professionals because yeah. they, would, they would come down to Chicago. Funny enough, I was having a conversation with Jerry Thompson, and uh, the very first PTQ top eight that I have in 2000 was the second or third PTQ that he had won oh. in Chicago. He's also from the Midwest. Yeah. And this just casually came up in conversation. He's like, oh, I won that PTQ. And I said, oh, well, you know, I lost in the quarterfinals to one of the Wisconsin guys. <laughs> and so, fast forward now to the modern day, about three, four years ago, I think, is when I met you mm. at Shane's and we were playing some modern. What, what kind of a player were you like at that time? So, I, uh, I took some intermittent breaks. So, back in 2005 was right after Affinity Standard. I've played in the Affinity PTQs. Uh, I played Affinity myself. I lost to a bunch of mirrors, but I won basically everything else, just like everybody else in, in that era. Uh, but we, uh, myself and a lot of the Magic community thought that uh, development had gone way down. So, mm-hmm. that, was a, that was a big exodus for the game for a lot of people, myself included. I went to the Champions of Kamigawa pre-release and then didn't play for three years. Mm-hmm. So, I, I took a three-year break where I focused on my career, came back briefly in at the end of 2007, 2008. I played some Alara Standard. Uh, I competed in the city championships, if, you, if you're familiar with those are. Uh, it's a now defunct system that Wizards had where... Um, LGS magic would feed into a city champs. So you would play in a bunch of little qualifier satellite tournaments at, at LGSs around the, the city. So the, our city was Seattle, but you could go down to Tacoma and grind points, or you could go to Everett and, and grind points. And I, I did the grind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I qualified for both top eights, but uh, did not perform 
in, in those events. Um, so that got me really back into competitive magic, but uh, 2009, 2010, uh, I kind of took a break again, most, uh, to refocus on my career. I had some life stuff come up. So, uh, 2011 came around and that was my actual return to magic, uh, as an adult and been focused on competitive play since. Uh, I no longer play kitchen table magic with 200 cards. <laughs> uh, uh, you, you met me in 2012, probably. I think so. Yeah. yeah 2012. Uh, I latched on to modern right away because I saw that it was going to go places. Yeah. Uh, as far as a competitive format went. And, uh, yeah, uh, been on the grind since. Yeah. It's very cool. And, uh, I want to talk about a deck that you had developed. Now, I- I'm a little fuzzy about this because I haven't really talked to you much about it. So you developed this deck. Yes. Uh, I feel that it's, difficult to take full credit for a deck in today's age because of the way the internet works. Uh, also, the the deck that I'm most known for, which is uh, Malera Company, or Abzan Company, as a lot of people call it, um, it's really just an extenuation of uh, the old Birthing Pod combos. So, Birthing Pod was popularized in 2012-2013 in modern. It was very popular, very good archetype. It was doing very well on the um, professional circuit. I also played it myself. Uh, I played it in standard when it was legal. I played it in modern when it uh, rotated out of standard. And uh, I took the combo, which was Viscera Seer, Malera, and Murder's Red Cap, and um, put that into a collective company shell with the release of Dragons of Tarkir. So, when Dragons was spoiled, uh, Dragons had um, Anafen's Kintry Spirit. It had Collect Company. I I put two and two together. And um, I guess I'm famous for the deck because I was the first person to win an event with the deck. If you look in, like, the archives, there were people on the internet that were developing a similar deck, uh, like on uh, MTG Salvation. Uh, There was a guy in Japan who top-aided an event with a very similar deck, like, the week before I did. Mm Mm-hmm. I was unaware of it then. I just only found it after researching. Uh, yeah, uh, I won a modern classic, I think is what it's called. Uh, yeah, modern classic uh, Star City thing in, in Portland in 2015, two months after Dragons of Tarkir was released. So it's been kind of fun. Uh, it turned me into a Z-list magic celebrity. <laughs> yeah, uh, in fact, um, I met a bunch of guys through this deck. Um, there were some pro tour, some guys who went to uh, the, the modern pro tour, uh, which was... Uh, Oath of the Gatewatch, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Pro Tour Oath was uh, was modern, and through Facebook, I collaborated with um, a friend of mine, Mark Jacobson, and Ari Lax, and uh, some other guys. Uh, they're very smart guys. They're very good players. They just shot ideas back and forth off of me to see what I thought, and that was fun to have a little input there. Um, I'd never take credit for you know their accomplishments, but uh, it was neat to be involved in that process. Very cool. And recently, you logged a thousand games with that deck. A uh, thousand? No, actually, uh, l- I'm sorry. Let me correct you. Uh, okay. Uh, I've played a thousand sanctioned matches of modern. Okay. I've got about 400 ish matches with with Malera Company. Uh huh. So a thousand matches of anything is is a lot. It, it, in fact, it's the most that I've played in any any format really. Uh huh. Um, 400 matches with one deck is a very significant sample size. <laughs> Uh, I've been playing it on and off since uh, March of 2015, and I played at competitive events. I've done, I've done rather well with it, especially at the local level. Top eight uh, regional, uh, the the Star City regionals, the Star City states twice with it. Uh, I won a pre TQ last weekend with it. I feel that it's, uh, I feel that it's a very good deck actually. And uh, if you want to go into the specifics of it, we can. <laughs> but but yeah, uh, 400 matches is more than. I've ever played anything else in my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would dare somebody to say that they've played more matches with, you know, any deck in, in one format. And you also log a lot of stats. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm a stats guy. Uh, I've got a ton of Google Sheets. I'm encroaching on Google server space, I think, with all, all my sheets. Uh, I keep track of, uh, when I can anyway, I keep track of all my data. Uh, it's wins and losses. I separate wins and losses by format, uh, by date to make sure that I'm improving. Uh, specifically with this deck, last year in December, I published a, a Google Sheet. It was about 25 pages of material on how to play the deck, how to, uh, not specific sideboard, sideboarding decisions, but how to play the deck, how the matchups felt, 
what cards were not good and then a lot of people try to jam cards in that, that aren't very good in the deck trust me i've tried them all and uh <laughs> sorry if i got a little quiet there but uh yeah i, I put a lot of data together um I, i'm one of those guys that uh there's no way i can do magic content week in and week out like like those writers do i don't have something to talk about all the time mm-hmm. with, with magic but when i do have something to, to say i take my time and i want it backed up by stats um, a lot of articles you'll read on the internet are mostly just theory crafting, right? Mm-hmm. Like a guy says, oh, I had this idea for a deck. I'm going to flesh it out on the internet and then throw it out there and see see what happens. That's fine. They're getting paid for that content and there's a certain category of players that that appeals to you. But uh, me, I'm you know very competitive minded, very statistical. So I'm, I'm going to, I want to back it all up with data. And I feel that I've done that. Uh, my win ratio with the deck is it's a hair over 70%. So that's pretty good, right? Yeah. Uh, the matchups for the deck, uh, it's just got incredibly good ones with the majority of the format. So, but you have to play it correctly. Uh huh. It's a deck that is very unforgiving and it doesn't play like a normal game of magic because, uh, you really you use the full 75 because of court of calling, mm-hmm. um, and to a lesser extent, uh, collect a company. Uh, you just, you have access to anything at any time on any turn after turn three or whatever. So, you have to have a good data bank of how those cards play out uh, uh, to play the deck. And it's pretty nuanced stuff. I would have liked to put more effort into the complete guide to Malira Company. But honestly, it's almost impossible to put a walkthrough on, because of how flexible it is and because of how customizable it is. It's, it's almost impossible to do that. Uh, Logan Mize played the deck on the Star City Circuit last year. He did very well with it. He put up more high-profile finishes than than anybody else, me, or uh, another gentleman named Bradley Carpenter also played it and did well. They had their own build of it. Uh, they were playing it in, even in the Splinter Twin metagame, which which I was too. Uh, it was a little risky then. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, they you know independently discovered their own, uh, the good lines, and they built their own version of the deck. And Logan Mize wrote a guide very similar to, to mine, and he published it through Star City Games. It was very informative, but like, like me, he ran into the problem of, well, how do I roadmap all this? This is... Uh, it, it's a novel worth of worth of information to you know to to plan two or three turns ahead in a deck with company and quarter calling is is tough to do. I love it. Well, you know this is a great segue. Let's do a quick deck tech about it. So here we go with Brad Rutherford. We've got Malira Company. Mm-hmm. Brad, for the record, what is your favorite name for this? I call yeah. it Mal- I call it Malira Company. There's Malira Company. There's Abzan Company. Junk Company. Malira uh, Combo. Podless Pod. Gets Podless Pod. Posted on the internet a lot. Uh, yeah. So the decks. It's um, 23 lands. It's eight or nine non-creature spells, mm-hmm. depending on how you want it configured that day. And then uh, the rest are creatures. Uh, the majority of which are cost three or less, so that you can hit them off of Collect a Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason it even exists at all is that most decks in modern can't beat infinite life. Uh, <laughs> Gee, it, infinite life? <laughs> or, excuse me, uh, I should put on my judge hat and say arbitrarily large amount of life. <laughs> Hundreds of millions of life. Uh, typically, I just write one billion. Okay. <laughs> because one B is, it's too... Uh, it's two characters on a sheet, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's enough to where most decks can't possibly even dream of doing that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The, the list of decks that can beat infinite or arbitrarily large life are very small. It's, in fact, yeah. Tron. Okay. They can reset the game with Karn or Emrakul you to death. And uh, some weird stuff that doesn't see a ton of play, like the mill deck. Mm-hmm. And the mill deck doesn't care about your life total. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure I'm missing a couple or two, but the burn matchup must be terrible for them. Yeah, I feel really good in the burn matchup. <laughs> uh, uh, I feel really good against. In, in fact, uh, I, I said in fact can be an infinite life, but uh, they can't do it if Malira is on the table. Ah, so uh, the the infect matchup is probably the best matchup in modern. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got two copies of Malira, mm-hmm. probably one or two spell skites in your deck, depending on your configuration for the day. And then you play four chords and four companies and Eternal Witness. Mm-hmm. So even if they draw their one dismember, you can buy it back with an Eternal Witness. You're the best Malira deck ever made. <laughs> so you get to play Malira's and Spell Skites against a deck that has infect creatures and pump spells. And Malira prevents you from getting poison counters and prevents your creatures from getting minus one, minus one counters on it. Yeah, uh, you can even block <laughs> if you if you feel the need to block. If you're if there's a glisten or elf coming in and you're fearing a bunch of pump spells, you can block and it's okay. 
That's hilarious. Yeah, the interaction between Malira and Inkmoth Nexus is great, too. Uh, I don't know if you want to get deep into the rules, but it's a, it's a timestamp issue. Oh, okay. So, if I have Malira on the table and they activate Inkmoth Nexus, Inkmoth Nexus is now a 1-1 flying infect creature. Mm-hmm. But Malira has another line of text that says I can't get poison counters and mm-hmm. my creatures can't get minus one, minus one. So, if they attack, if opponent attacks with an Inkmoth Nexus and I have Malira on the field, it's not like Glistener for Blighted Agent. You don't take normal damage. Nothing happens. <laughs> you, you take nothing because it's an Infect creature, but Malira says I can't have any of the counters. So Interesting. It's a timestamp issue It's uh, as far as the rules are concerned, and a lot of people aren't just going to know that intuitively. Uh, in fact, I went out to Grand Prix Pittsburgh last year, and my Infect opponent was very surprised to learn this. Huh. Yeah, he blew a bunch of spells thinking I would take normal damage, and I took nothing. Wow. Yeah, it was his whole hand, so I won that game. Wow. Uh, okay, but- and so continuing on, we've got uh, we've got Malira that prevents minus one, minus one counters, mm-hmm. prevents poison. And also, the minus one, minus one counters are also very convenient for creatures with persist. We've got our favorite Ufi, Ufa, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Kitchen Finks. Kitchen Finks. And we've also got some crazy looking guy named Murderous Redcap. Yeah, that's the heart of the combo is uh, Malira, Viscerous Ear, Redcap, and, and then a Persist creature, either uh, Murderous Redcap or Kitchen Finks. And uh, if things go well for you, you can do this on turn three, but um, you can get all three of those cards into play, uh, sacrifice the Persist creature to scry. And then either deal infinite damage to your opponent or gain infinite life. By playing multiple parts of all these combo bits and Eternal Witness and Collect Company, you're very likely to do this. Mm -hmm. Cards like Lightning Bolt, Path Exile, they break you up. But there are redundant pieces in the deck, which is why I feel that it's very, why I feel it's very good uh, deck in the format. There are, there are decks with multiple removal spells. A Jun deck or an Ahiri deck has 14 or 15 removal spells in their main deck, but you've got more targets than they have spells and they're going to draw other things too. Mm-hmm. So, um, you're, you're actually pretty good against those decks, um, against the heavy removal decks because of redundancy. And you're good against every deck that doesn't have a lot of removal because you're fast and consistent. So, it's uh, the decks that really throw a wrench into the gears are things like Scapeshift deck, uh, which has potentially has Anger of the Gods and or Lightning Bolt in the main deck, and uh, Tron, uh, Green Red Tron, uh, because they'll have Pyroclasms to break you up early. And both of these decks play enormous creatures that close out a game fast. They play like a, a pseudo combo finish. And, and with, with Scapeshift, it's actually a combo finish. But the, the green-red Valakut deck variant, uh, it will just play Primeval Titan. That's usually game. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can keep the creatures off the board. Those are the bad matchups in the format. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Lightning Bolt decks and Infect and Burn. Burn, also easy matchup. Uh, four Kitchen Finks. You're a very good Kitchen Finks deck. <laughs> I said a minute ago that this is the best uh, Malaria deck in the format that's um, ever made. Uh, it's also the best Kitchen Finks deck ever made. It's also the best Viscera deck. (laughs) Yeah, it's also that he's a little, he's not great, but you know, he does just enough. Um, He's also pretty good against Anger of the Gods. Yeah. uh, By by putting the creatures in the graveyard, uh, I get to not get exiled from Path Mm -hmm. to Exile or uh, Anger of the Gods. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's the whole, you know, block your Tarmogoyf with this Birds of Paradise and Sack to Scry. So, oh. that that happens a significant amount. Yeah, just sacking the irrelevant creatures. I uh, This comes up a lot more than I'd like it to, but uh, where I, I sacrifice just uh, the quote-unquote irrelevant creatures on my upkeep so that my draw step is, is a good one. Yes, the Scry is absolutely relevant. It is, uh, especially with the power of... A, Card like Collect Company Quarter Calling, those are so good. Uh, they they really make the deck function. If, if either one were you know banned or removed from Modern or whatever, then the deck just could not exist. So the premise of the deck is we've got these very interesting combo pieces that work in awesome infinite ways, <laughs> one billion ways, one billion ways, <laughs> and then we've got this incredibly versatile toolbox: mm-hmm. Collected Company, Court of Calling. We've got all these other things: Archangel of Thune. Yep. We've got Spike Feeder. Yeah, uh, Archangel of Thune and Spike. Feeder want to talk about because uh, a lot of people um, skip that combo, and I think that it's it's incredibly important even now. Um, so, Spike Feeder is a three mana two two. You remove a counter to gain two life. You can do that for free. Just do it. Uh, Archangel Thune is a five mana three four flyer with uh, life link, and it has a uh, triggered ability. It says when you gain life, 
put a plus one plus one counter on every creature you control. Gavity Township. <laughs> yeah, it's it's its own like flying Gavity Township with lifelink. It's it's the best Gavity Township. Uh, but if you happen to have both creatures, so it's a two card combo. If you have both creatures, you remove a counter, you gain two life, and then Archangel triggers, and now. All of your non-spike feeder creatures end up with an arbitrarily large number of plus one plus one counters at the end of this. So you go to a billion and then everything has 500 million plus one plus one counters <laughs> on it. Uh, and your spike feeder is a 2-2, but that's just irrelevant. Uh, all you have to do is attack with the Birds of Paradise and you know 500 million point shot is usually enough to kill someone. Yep. So I think that combo, I've been playing it uh, for a long time and uh, mostly to beat scavenging news. Mm-hmm. Archangel Thune is incidentally also just very good against Jund anyway, because Jund's removal spells are mostly lightning bolts and abrupt decays, uh, neither of which will hit that card. So, uh, I've been playing it forever. Uh, now, Dredge is the new hotness in the modern format. Uh, Ross Miriam and Tom Ross both have been playing the last couple of weeks at the Invitational and um, uh, Star City Open before that, and they've done well. So now Graveyard Hate's going to be at a premium mm-hmm. uh, moving forward. In theory, that's what people are going to play, right? They're mm-hmm. gonna, they don't want to play Dredge because it's got a big target on its head, but they're going to play all the cards that beat Dredge because everybody else is going to be playing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, incidentally, cards like Grafdigger's Cage and Rest in Peace uh, interfere with the Persist combos that the deck is most famous for. So by having this alternate combo, which does not use the Graveyard, Gives you a lot of game against those decks. Right. Uh, additionally, Archangel uh, works with Viscera Seer and Kitchen Finks. It acts like a legend. So if you have Viscera Seer and Kitchen Finks and Archangel of Thune, you end up with an arbitrarily large number of plus one plus one counters on all your creatures. Mm-hmm. You sack the Finks to Scry, it comes back and persists as a 2 1, but you gain two life, which triggers Archangel of Thune, which puts a counter on all your guys, and then you can do it again. So it's, it's like the. Uh, fifth copy of Malera or Anafenza Kintry Spirit. And what's great, Brad, is that I realized this kind of not too long ago that minus one, minus one counters cancel out plus one, plus one counters. It's Mm. not like they just sit on top of each other parallel. They cancel each other out. They actually used to sit on the same creature. Uh Uh-huh. But with the development of the Lorwyn block, where they introduced um, Persist and... um, Wither, I think. And and Wither. uh, They changed how that worked so that it would just cancel out. It was a good move on their part, um, but, uh, you know, it led to this combo of... This particular combo. If if the rules still work the old way, this wouldn't happen. Really? Uh, Well, with Anaphensic Kindry Spirit, anyway. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. uh, Not so much Malera. Uh, yeah, the deck, uh, we were talking about Archangel Thune and Spike Feeder. Spike Feeder also does this. It's the fifth Kitchen Finks against the Burn decks. And you can also use it to reset a Persist creature. So if you have, uh, Spike Feeder, but, uh, no Archangel of Thune and, and the situation calls for it, you can move the counters from the Spike Feeder around and give your guys Persist again. Which is relevant. Uh, there are people who will, for whatever reason, a, a Kitchen Finks will die in combat or it will die to a lightning bolt. And you can't go go infinite, so to speak, unless there's no counters on it. Unless there's no minus one, minus one counters on it. So, the Spike Feeder helps in that regard too. So, this is a very versatile deck. You've done well with it. Other players have done well with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very interesting. It's very interactive. Um, I want to say it's very Johnny because you're gaining a lot of life, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, and you're you're scrying your deck too, so you you get to like if everything goes well for you, if you assemble your persist, your kitchen finks, and your legend, and then your uh, viscers here, you're also scrying your deck, presumably to the win card on top, whatever mm-hmm. that is. It's a little bit of a Johnny deck. Uh, I'll admit that I've been attracted to big flashy combos in the past. This was a natural conclusion for me. I, I always like these types of decks. I played uh, I, I've played many combo decks. Uh, I'm, I'm much more of a, I'm, I'm an old school player. We started in, in the nineties. We played a lot. There were so many more combo decks than there were anything else, basically, because uh, Wizards wasn't afraid to print powerful non-creatures. Not that they're afraid now, but they, uh, <laughs> they generally shy away from they, that. They, they do. Now, now all the spells come stapled to creatures. And that's yeah. what, uh, that's part of the, the, the charm of Malaria Company is that modern stretches back to 2004. So we get all these very powerful little one, two, and three drops that are, that have a huge impact on the game. And because of Court of Calling and Collect Company and Eternal Witness, you get to play with them a lot in this deck. Things like Kataki, Wars Wage, just devastating for most affinity players. Uh, Burnt and Forge Tender, Fulminator Mage, 
these things that, you know, uh, variants and their small stature was supposed to keep people from playing them in multiples, but this deck gets to reap all those benefits. Very interesting. Yeah. So, Brad, would you recommend that players pick up this deck? <laughs> it's very hard to play, uh, <laughs> especially especially well. Um, uh, I even even after four hundred matches, I've I've made a mistake or two. Uh, I caught a couple of mistakes this last weekend, and um, I was supposed to play a land untapped, and I forgot to, and mm-hmm. uh, so that I could cord in case he had bolt plus anger of the gods or something like it, it was. It was a very complex scenario that. Actually didn't punish me, but I, I still should have done it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think now that Amulet Bloom is gone from the format, uh, that was a deck that was banned uh, last year. Uh, I do think that this is the hardest deck in the format to play. Nothing else is as complex. Everything else is basically playing the cards that they're dealt. This has the toolbox and the tutor engine. And uh, uh, just playing the card collect company correctly is tough. Yeah. So while I do recommend the deck... I also recommend getting in like 100 hours of playtesting before taking it <laughs> to a tournament because it is tough. Yeah, very cool. Should we take a little bit of a snack break? Do you oh, wanna, sure. Yeah, do you want to munch on these snacks? Yeah, let me try one of these fish crackers. Yes, go for it. Am I just going to eat the microphone? Go, yeah, All why right. not? Mmm. <laughs> so that's interesting. I'm not sure what this flavor is, but it is spicy. Hmm. Um, <laughs> it reminds me of a bugle. Yeah, it's like a great big spicy bugle. It's not what I expected out of with the fish on the bag. Hmm. I wonder if the fish is just the the mascot or something here. The fish is the mascot, but it says fish crackers. It does. So they're supposed to be fish flavored. I'm not really even sure what fish flavored is. Hmm. I'm sure there's some people that will just turn off your podcast because we're chewing in their ears now (laughs) (laughs) i might edit this part out (laughs) yeah that's that's fine no they're they're good brad you're also a judge right yes i am i'm a level two judge brad can you talk a little bit more about being a judge and when you decided to become a judge let's start off with saying that uh way back in uh 2001 i was already competitive and i was traveling around playing magic and when you play competitive, turns out that you need to know the rules. <laughs> uh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I picked up on uh, a lot of rules and even, you know, uh, how to deal with infractions and stuff because you just see those types of things a lot. And uh, at my LGS, um, which was the place in, in Lincoln, Illinois, uh, where I'm from, I was unofficially officiating a bunch of tournaments. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we had a bunch of kids coming in uh, who didn't know how to play Magic and a bunch of young adults that didn't know how to play Magic. And uh, I would play sometimes and sometimes I would just officiate and they needed somebody to manage things and we didn't have an L1 judge. So, I was this level zero judge just <laughs> like helping out running the events. My uh, a good friend of mine named Justin, he owned the store and he just asked me sometimes to help him run the things because it got too much to hand, got to be too much to handle for one person. Uh, 2005 rolls around and I start uh, trying to learn to be a judge. I mentored under a couple of guys. Uh, 2006, I worked a Grand Prix as a level zero. Oh, wow. You could, you could do that back then. Uh, you can't do that now. You have to be a level two to even judge a Grand Prix, but <laughs> it was a different different world. That it was, was the wild, wild west. It was. Uh, that was when uh, it was in St. Louis. Uh, that was the Grand Prix that uh, Zach Hill won, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was a floor judge as a level zero, and uh, I took a test, and uh, I failed that test. <laughs> uh, the the uh, I thought I was ready. Uh, I was you know a little too arrogant about it. And back then, the level one test was very rigorous. Uh, the definitions of judge have changed over the years. Uh, so the the level one test in two thousand six was very similar to the level two test in that I took uh, last year in two thousand fifteen. Yeah, it was it was a t- it was a tough one. Uh, I was discouraged. I didn't pursue it anymore. Uh, I came out to um, Seattle into the late 2006. So, uh, I judged the GP in the summer, came out in late 2006. And I worked one or two events as a level zero judge and just kind of dropped it. Uh, it w- wasn't important to me. Plus, I had uh, some life stuff come up. Uh, I was changing careers. 
So, um, didn't pursue the judge, uh, judge thing anymore. Uh, 2011, I came back as a player and I played for four years and I said, you know, there's a real gap in our community. Uh, we've got a couple of judges that are spread really thin. We've got some, some guys that are blowing calls like it, and that really spoke to me. Um, there's, there's just nothing worse than losing a match to a blown judge call. And I thought maybe I can help here. I can come in. Uh, I, I'm not trying to say that I would do a perfect job, but uh, I would, come in as an experienced competitive level player, which uh, the judge community is sorely lacking in competitive players. A lot of these guys, some of them never even played competitively, um, just to be honest. Uh, so I come from a different world. I thought I could add some perspective to it. I came in with good intentions, and I think I've done that. Uh, I, I think I've come in. I've, I've tried to mentor a couple of L1s. Uh, I helped you know, Frank Stanley study for L2, a uh, good friend of mine, and uh, I'm constantly doing reviews and in-person feedback. I'm not the kind of person to to hold back, right? Like I, I want to come in and say, this is what you did that was great, and this is what you did that could use some work. And uh, hopefully these guys are, you know, taking it to heart And now that I'm a peer rather than just some schmo that's playing in their tournaments. So I, I think I could do some good. And uh, I also, you know, help fill that gap. Uh, I've judged, uh, I don't know, 12 or 13 pre-TQs now, I think. And I've got two more lined up or three more lined up uh, before the end of uh, before the end of the summer. Uh, with pre-TQs, now there's a competitive event basically every weekend. Mm-hmm. And um, we're in a big metro area. Yeah. So if there's only four or five guys who are willing to do this, you know, without, you know, without me being in the picture, now I'm in the picture, I can, we can help spread that around. There's this secret judge cabal world that you don't know about where we, <laughs> we're all talking on the internet to each other about, you know, who's, who's going where. But in, in reality, stores, uh, you know, they work with a judge once or twice and they get a good feel for them and then they ask them to come back usually. They want, they want to get somebody who's reliable and, and good at their job. So like Andrew Goulart does a very good job. He's up, he's up north. He's in Everett, I think. He does a lot of the north end stuff. Jeff Vanderberg's in Tacoma. He's he's good at his job. And he's doing stuff south, and I'm kind of in the middle. Uh, there's other L2s and 3s around here, but uh, they're pretty busy, or they're only locked to one store, or et cetera, et cetera. Like, um, I'm I'm doing Renton and Tacoma, and some I've done some North and stuff, and some mock stuff for them. So I'm I'm filling in those gaps, and it's exactly what I want to do. You know, get in the program, help out where I can help the players out by judging these events. Uh, if they didn't have a judge, we wouldn't have them. Help the judges out, maybe improve things a little bit for the players. Very cool. Brad, I've seen you at several large events, like GPs and things like that. What is it like to be a judge in one of those large events? <laughs> it's challenging. I'm learning more and more that I am that I need to get in shape. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, 10, 11 hours, sometimes more on your feet, on a concrete floor, walking around, uh, everything's time sensitive mm -hmm. um, because of how magic works. It's a little stressful. Uh, I'm now getting into the groove. I've judged, um, I believe I've judged five Grand Prix now wow. uh, over the last year. And yeah, I've done a little bit of everything. So uh, constructed, sealed, modern now. Um, getting, a, getting a feel for that. Um, I, I'm going to these Grand Prix to get best practices. I want to be a good judge. Uh, that means, you know, constant learning. Um, I, I want best practices from all these other judges. So I'm going to these Grand Prix to branch out uh, and get all those best practices from people who are outside of my area. I had a great mentor with John Carter. Uh, he's a level three. He's been a judge forever. He used to work at Wizards. He was, um, I don't think he was the judge manager. He did uh, the Saturday morning rules thing on their website, but He's he's been around many blocks as far as a judge goes, and he was a great mentor. But you know, I want to grab all the all the best things that I can from every part of the judge community and and incorporate it into my events. So going to the GPS, I'm calming down on GPS now. Going to but but going to GPS had an actual purpose for me. I want to learn everything that I can, educate myself, be the best L two that I can be, and uh, it's helped. Uh, I, I'm nowhere near done. Uh, it's funny that. I went to a judge conference in August. Uh, I thought, oh, I'm not sure if this is going to be worth my time. I've judged a bunch of GPs. I've run 12 or 13 of my own pre-TQs. I've been playing for a million years. 
what can they possibly teach me? <laughs> and then I went and basically every presentation had something to teach me. So wow. It, it was a very valuable experience for me. I'm super happy that I went and I want to go to another judge conference somewhere else in the country so that I'm not seeing the same presenters over and over again. That's very cool. Brad, would you recommend that competitive magic players or just magic players wanting to be deeper into the community that they consider becoming judges? Uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, it involves a very deep understanding of the rules and it very, and it also involves being deeply involved with the community. So it's not going to appeal to every personality type. There's a lot of people out there that just want to come and play magic. There's a lot of people who don't want to study for this kind of thing. Uh, I wouldn't recommend that they go down that path without making sure it was something that they want to do. So if you, if you're that kind of, you know, helpful personality type, if you're amicable type person, uh, you should take a look at it. Maybe talk to a judge. Maybe do a, uh, maybe sit down with an L2 or an L3, somebody who's been a judge for a long time and ask some questions, see if it will be worth it for you. I do think that the competitive player should learn the rules at least as well as a level one judge mm-hmm. and maybe, maybe even a level two. Because things like, uh, especially uh, like, like that Malera interaction I was talking about earlier, Malera and Inkmoth Nexus, it's kind of weird. It's not super intuitive, but it comes up. Uh, in fact, it comes up quite a bit for me because I play company and I play a lot of opponents who play Infect and Affinity, both of which have Inkmoth Nexus in it. So I know it backwards and forwards, but they might not. And one of the worst ways to lose a game of magic is to sit down and not understand how the game, how the rules work and mm-hmm. how your cards interact with your opponent's cards. And if you have to stop and ask for a judge, well, that's just a big tell that you don't know how it works. Yeah, I, I strongly recommend that competitive, the series competitive player takes the extra time, uh, maybe even starts to look at the, at the judge questions themselves. Maybe not go through the whole process of being a judge, but learning the rules as well as one. Uh, you're going to be at a severe disadvantage if you don't, because a lot of those guys who are are on the pro tour already have rules knowledge like a, a level two judge does. That's smart thinking to be able to know what your interactions are depending on the matchups that you're expecting. And like you said, not having it be a tell when you call judge over and then your opponent's like, oh, okay, so I guess you don't really know this. Yeah, it's it's a clue that maybe you're less experienced than they are, or maybe you just don't know the rules as much. It also just uh, you know breaks up the pace of a match. Um, there's a lot of good reasons to to just know everything you know going into uh, a match of, of magic. Brad, you've been a competitive player for quite a number of years. What advice do you have for players wanting to level up and get to the pro tour? Practice, uh, practice. There's no uh, substitute for practice. Uh, you need to play. Lots of games. There's some. There's an adage out there that I don't know who it's attributed to, but uh, they say you're an expert after 10,000 hours of practice. Mm-hmm. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. It's going to take years. Uh, the guys who, you know, they qualify, you know, they pick up a deck they don't know and they've only been playing a year and they qualify for the Pro Tour. That's, uh, those are the exception, not the rule. Like those guys, almost ne- that almost never happens. The, the guys who qualify for the Pro Tour are the guys that have been playing for five or ten years or more. Mm-hmm. The guys who have seen every type of deck, have played every type of deck, that know how card interactions work. Uh, y- you just can't slip one by all those guys. Uh, you'll know them from your local game stores, right? You know, like these are the guys that have been to the Pro Tour once or twice or the guys that travel to the GPs, etc. Uh, you need to be on that level if you're going to start to compete there. Mm-hmm. So, Otherwise, you're just at a big disadvantage. Um, yeah, no substitute for practice. Um, I also think deck selection is huge. Uh, this is a little more nuanced and it's only going to appeal to like the most competitive players. But uh, I think that picking the right deck for a tournament is a very challenging thing to do. You need to be prepared. Uh, cards are so powerful these days. Uh, the skill gap is very small. What that means is uh, the level of difference between myself and like the guy who's been playing for two years, who's been playing competitively for two years, is very small. That guy is going to beat me some percentage of the time. But uh, I think a lot more is to be said for how the decks line up than than the actual skill. The skill is the smallest percentage of, of sitting down and winning. Whereas the deck selection can come into play quite a bit more. We talked earlier about Malira Company, right? I sit down against a guy playing Burn and I feel like I'm 90% to win. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by deck selection. Yeah. Right? Tron versus Jund, um, et cetera. Like there, there's a number, especially in the older formats, 
like legacy and modern, I think that's super important. Standard has kind of a flat power level, so you probably don't need as much there. But mm-hmm. yeah, uh, deck selection is big. Uh, if you if you just copy last week's hotness, you're probably not going to do great. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we talked about how Ross Miriam and Tom Ross both uh, spiked a couple of tournaments with uh, Dredge last two weeks. If somebody were to pick up Dredge now, they're probably going to have a hostile and hostile time because everybody on Earth that plays modern that is in tune with the metagame is going to know about this deck and they're going to say, I want an extra Graph Digger's Cage in my sideboard or I want another Rest in Peace or I want to play four Anger of the Gods today or something. In a format where the cards are super powerful, like modern deck selection is very meaningful. In standard, now that we have a faster standard rotation, what do you recommend for people wanting to bring the right deck to the right meta? Practice a bunch, uh, proxy up all the new decks, uh, play with them, see what's good. It's a big time investment. Uh, Magic's always been a big time investment. Uh, it's it's actually pretty rare that somebody can just pick up a deck and go win a tournament with it. So deck selection and practice go hand in hand. So you you practice with a bunch. You pro- like uh, we're doing that now. Um, my buddy Phil is qualified for the RPTQ. We've got five or six. We have six different standard decks proxied right in front of me right now. We've been bashing them against each other, and we're going to see what the best deck for him is on uh, for for the RPTQ on Sunday. Uh, but uh, I, I went on about deck selection and about practicing. They go hand in hand. You want to sit down, play for you know a couple of nights for a couple of hours, make sure that you understand how the matchups work, and then make the smartest choice that you can, whatever that is. Uh, sometimes you'll lean towards decks that you have experience with. Like I'm probably going to play Malira Company until, well, until I can't play it anymore. Mm-hmm. But uh, because I've got a million hours of experience with it, there uh, I, I might shelve it if everybody on Earth starts playing a bunch of Graph Diggers Cages and Leyline of the Voids, right? You'll want to be at the top of the metagame when that happens. You want to have a good plan like for the Bant Company Mirror, whatever that is. Uh, I think it's Selfless Spirit and, and Archangel Avison, but somebody else might think it's Subjugator Angel and somebody else might think it's a bunch of counterspells. Well, you need to sit down and test it and see which one is best for your playstyle. See which one works is the most efficient. I've got a logbook of wins versus losses and how many games we've played and et cetera. Uh, we, you know, take it seriously. So when you play test, get everything down to, to muscle memory and also pay attention to what matters. Very cool. Mm-hmm. And Brad, what advice do you have for new players just starting off with the game or just getting into the game? Have fun. You're not going to win every match. Don't expect that. Um, you need to have realistic expectations. Magic's very hard. It's complex. It's 20 or 22 years old now. Like 23, 24. Uh, oh gosh. It's even older than that. Yeah. It's 20, <laughs> 20, yeah. 23 years old now. Uh, there are people that have been playing since the dawn of time and you're going to run into them and they're going to have a good deck and maybe you're not, uh, but have a good time. Uh, it, that's important at the higher levels too, because if you're not enjoying yourself, uh, why are you playing? Right. I love that very much. So Brad, what are you up to these days? Like what's new for you moving forward? Well, actually I'm going to make a competitive push. I've kind of, uh, half-assed it for the last couple of years. And um, even though I've gone to GPs and I've play-tested a few times, uh, I've never really put that professional-level effort in, um, either for uh, because of my career or because of another hobby that I have or whatever. Uh, I've never made you know the, the full effort push. I've never been 100% invested, and now I'm going to. So, I've got a bunch of GPs lined up through the first quarter of next year that I'm going to. I booked a bunch of plane tickets. I'm going to test extensively for a lot of those. I'm going to start up my Magic Online account again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dust off that old MTGO account. Yeah, I kind of got disin, uh, disenfranchised with, uh, with version 4, but now I'm going to buy some standard cards and play standard online. Uh, it's the be- one of the better ways to play a test, I think. So, Are you going to draft a ton? Yeah, but... Only if I qualify for a pro tour. Okay. Drafting is only relevant for, well, a a sealed GP or a pro tour. And I feel that uh, uh, it's just an unnecessary skill for constructed. If you're you're going to spend a lot of time for constructed, you you might as well just spend all your time there and then worry about limited later. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe that's the wrong approach. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. Um, 
It's funny because I've actually done a complete 180. I started off as a limited guy. Oh. Uh, yeah, I know. It seems weird, but... Uh, That's so interesting. I've never figured you for for drafting and well, playing limited. I, yeah, I've... Uh, in fact, my my draft record and my sealed record are actually better than any of my other records uh, because I preserved it historically. Of course, I've you know spent a lot of time playing at LGSs where I where I play a bunch of people who don't have as much experience as me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a little inflated there. Uh, but yeah, I was a I was a limited guy up until oh probably until the city champs until mm-hmm. 2007 2008 when I when those were constructed events when I really uh, buckled down and and played and played constructed. Very cool. Yeah. And what about your trading, buy selling? You're always you always know all about the financials about cards. Uh, yeah, that's the thing where I've um, when I was a kid, I just didn't have money. Uh, I was a waiter, you know. At, well, at first I was a I had a paper out, and then I was a waiter during college, and mm-hmm. I played a little bit during college. And uh, when you don't have money, it's hard to play Magic. Magic's ex- it's an expensive hobby, so uh, I was the trade shark. Um, so, in if you knew me in 1999 through 2002. I'm sorry. <laughs> I I probably took all of your money. Uh, I was well back then. Cell phones weren't ubiquitous, mm-hmm. uh, and either were online prices. So it was pretty easy to hustle somebody in a trade by saying, "Oh yeah, the, I value your card at X when X is probably fifty percent or thirty percent of what it was really worth." Yeah, I was that guy. <laughs> I, I feel bad about it now. Uh, it's not it's not stealing when you talk somebody into it, but <laughs> but I was a uh, I was the scummy guy who was undervaluing their cards and overvaluing mine, and uh-huh. yeah. Uh, but that's how you uh, if you have if you're a kid and you want to play vintage, that's how you had to play. Yeah. So um, so that's what I did uh, in 2011. I came back as an adult, and as an adult, I thought, oh, it's very irresponsible of me to <laughs> to spend thousands and thousands of magic or, of dollars on magic cards. So I'm just going to subsidize it as best that I can, and uh, subsidizing meant speculating on cards. Or uh, I don't really, I actually don't trade very much anymore. I I, do, I, I have latched on to Puka Trade. Uh, that's been very beneficial for me. Uh, I've I've done about four or five thousand dollars worth of uh, exchanges where I've sent out old standard cards that mm-hmm. that I accumulated playing standard from the last five years. And got back modern staples and legacy nice. stuff. Yeah. So things that are eternally playable versus things that aren't. Um, now that I've fleshed out my modern collection, I get to that's Puka Trade is now how I build my standard collection. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm sending out the standard cards I don't want and I'm getting back the standard cards that I do want. I'm also a judge. So I get to subsidize myself that way. When I judge an event, I get either booster packs or store credit. So I get to pick up singles or uh, sell the box or trade the box for magic cards that I want. Uh, I do uh, dabble in MTG finance, and I, I recently learned a lot. Uh, I sold a 72,000 uh, card collection for another local judge. I was in charge of that. Uh, it was a month worth of work, and now I know the prices of everything. Wow. He had been playing since 94 and never sold a card, so he just had thousands and thousands of magic cards. and uh, Many of them were EDH cards. Many of them were foil cards. Many of them were legacy cards. So now I'm very much in tune with with uh, buying and selling. That is so cool. I really like talking to you, Brad, because there's all these different perspectives. You know, um, when we first sat down, I would just think of you as the uh, the constructed modern guru. You know, I have a question about something, and you can kind of explain it to me. Or if I if we play, a, you know, a match, and you know, after I lose, I ask you, hey, you know, did I have any play mistakes? And you'd kind of run it down with me. But now, you know, talking to you about judging and trading and uh, the history of the game and all these interesting things and like how to play better and like keeping a log, like what interesting perspective. So, I really want to acknowledge you, Brad. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun and just to go down memory lane, talk about magic stuff. It's, it's great. Brad, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Okay. <laughs> Are you ready? Are you... I'm as ready as I'll get. Go ahead. Okay. All righty. Here we go. Rapid fire question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, what is your favorite color and why? Red. Um, I had a lot of success with red decks, with uh, burn decks. So, uh, I love a goblin guide. It's my... F- the one deck that I foiled was was a foil modern red deck. So, nice. Yeah, I'm I'm also a Goblin Guide enthusiast. Oh yeah, what do you like about Goblin Guide? Uh, he's one of the best one drops ever made. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the deck he's in is very dangerous. It uh, burn gets to work on an axis that other decks don't, which is the stack. Like it's just 
burn and counterspell decks. So, mm-hmm. um, because you're on this unique axis and there's a ton of good burn spells now, uh, I feel that it's a pretty good deck. I don't play it anymore because I'm more attached to Malera Company and I think Malera is slightly better, but burn is still has a space in my heart. In fact, I'm still collecting foil red cards. Like that's, that's my thing. I collect foil red cards. So I've got a, I've got a big collection I can show you after we're done. Brad, rapid fire question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? I would actually take the maybe the mulligan rule a little bit further. Um, there's variance in the game and it serves a good purpose. It's so that the best player doesn't always win and so that there's a change in the game. But I think there could be a little bit less. I know it's kind of a selfish thing to say because uh, people like myself don't like to losing to, you know, not drawing your fourth land or whatever mm-hmm. or never drawing a land or drawing all your lands, etc. Like reducing variance... Probably sounds, it's a little dangerous in a world where there's a bunch of combo decks, but standard modern don't have a lot of combo decks. So, uh, I think it's probably okay there. Maybe a different mulligan rule for vintage and legacy. I don't know. Um, this is something I don't think about a lot, but uh, I would like a, a way to reduce variance on, on some, in some way. And I, and the mulligan rule was pretty good, but I think taking a step further, maybe mul- scry one for every, uh, for every mulligan you take. Ah. So maybe if you, if you mulligan a four, you would scry three. Ah. Like, uh, I, I think that would be fair. You're probably still going to lose because, <laughs> because you don't have many cards in your hand. But yeah, I, I think that's probably fair and could be tested out. Very cool. Brad, question number three. If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? Hmm. <laughs> this is the stumped one. Uh, I don't really know, but I guess it would be rules knowledge. Okay. Uh, just imparting all the rules knowledge. It feels really bad as a judge for me to give a gamer a match loss, especially for something that um, could have been avoided. Uh, I guess I, I should rephrase that as rules and policy knowledge. Uh, because things like match losses come from policy. Somebody doesn't know what outside assistance is, and then they commit it, and then they have to get a match loss. That feels bad for me. It feels almost as bad for me as it feels for them, especially when I know that they didn't have negative intentions, really. They they just thought they were doing the right thing. Um, I've seen that a lot as a judge. Somebody thinks they're doing the right thing. They are not doing the right thing. And if we could just avoid all those things, that would be that would be great. Brad, question number four. What do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? This is one that I'm pretty curious about. Um, I don't know where they go from here. We've we've got uh, uh, a little bit of power creep, you know, that's been happening over the last few years. Creatures get better and better, and uh, I'm not sure that they can do a bunch more lateral moves. So I think we're going to see even better creatures in the future. <laughs> Uh, as far as, uh, MTG finance goes, I'm actually very curious about that, uh, because, uh, the last few years they've pressed a couple of buttons that I didn't expect them to press. Mm. Uh, they pressed the fetch land button with concentric here and then the expeditions. They've pressed the reprint button with, uh, eternal masters. They, but they have, but they didn't get into the ban list. Or, well, excuse me, they didn't get into the reserve list. Yeah, I don't think they're going to touch the reserve list for legal reasons. But they're reprinting a lot of valuable cards uh, through, like Modern Masters, Modern Masters Two, Eternal Masters, uh, Conspiracy. Yeah, uh, Conspiracy's got a show and tell and burgeoning and some other twenty, thirty, forty dollar cards in it. So um, at some point, they're going to run out of cards to reprint, and they're going to run out of new things to do. Uh, how how many years in a row can they press that fetch land button? How many years in a row can they put in a, a reprint set with a bunch of old cards in it? Uh, are they going to do more expeditions? Um, Wizards is a company and they're beholden to uh, the Republic company. So they're beholden to shareholders. So they have to increase profits every year. And if their, uh, their acquisition of new players levels off or plateaus or, or even drops then they're going to have to press all these buttons again and uh, have all their existing customers buy more product. And the best way to have an existing customer buy more product is the fancy reprints with the foils in them or the expeditions or whatever. So, um, yeah, two or three years from now, I am very curious what buttons they're going to press and what they're going to do on that aspect. I hope they go back to like a format where spells matter. <laughs> it's like we go back, we're like, we're like return to Dominaria and everything's in ruins. But hey, Counterspell is back. Uh, it's super unlikely. Uh, the fact is that uh, most people, they, they like, uh, new players like creature combat. Uh, Wizards has been very vocal about uh, making 
especially standard about creature combat and even modern to a degree about um, playing guys and attacking because that's ABC magic. That's the simplest level of magic. It's the thing that people, everybody learns on through drafts or sealed deck or whatever, however they start. So they want to encourage that, but uh, yeah, it's, it's probably not going to happen. Uh, we're going to be stuck with more spell quellers and <laughs> uh, creatures that are spells. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. Uh, creatures with spells attached to them. I think that's a good thing. Uh, I think so too, although they can get a little car- little far carried away. Um, I think Spellcaller should have said three or less rather than four or less. Mm, I agree with you. Four, four seems like a big spell to me. It does. Well, it stops all the sweepers, which I think is what they had in mind. But at the same time, it meant that you know, Languish's stock went way down and... Uh, uh, it's also just game breaking in the company mirror, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you just uh, counter their collected company and now you've got a guy. So you've taken a huge tempo swing. Yeah. Uh, I, I think maybe they've gone a little too far with some of this stuff, but I'm still going to play magic. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. Very cool. And last, Brad, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience? Like what they should do, think, consider? Well, speaking as a member of the judge community, um, I think that... If you have a question, talk to the judge. You don't have to do it at the table. You can talk to him between rounds. Almost all of my peers are very approachable, nice, likable people. Uh, talk to them. If if you have feedback for them, give it to them. If it's constructive criticism, give it to them. They're humans. They're going to make a mistake or two, but take them to task on that. If they've made a mistake or if they've done a good job, like they want to know these things. It feels like an accomplishment to run a tournament and then just go home and have no nothing caught on fire. Um, but it's the best day ever if you've run a good tournament and somebody tells you that it was a great tournament. Yeah. It's also a good tournament if I've learned something. So, you know, if I do make a mistake or uh, if the judge makes a mistake and they don't catch it right away, they want to know. They need to fix that. So, let them know. Don't go to social media on it. Just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's never a good thing. Uh, you're never going to get the answers that you want out of social media. Uh, just talk to the person. They're, they're a person. So, have a conversation they're not some policeman authority figure. They're not some judge. Uh, they are a judge. They're a magic judge, not a not a law judge. So, uh, yeah, talk to them, have a conversation, give them feedback, and they can explain things. Very nice. Yeah. Brad, is there any way that the listening audience can find you on social media? Yeah. So, uh, I've got a Twitter account, but I'm not really on it. Uh, Facebook, I'm very open. I accept basically everybody's friends requests as long as they're a real profile. Um, I take judge questions on Facebook, but there's better avenues for that. Uh, if you want to talk about Malira Company, I will fill your inbox with spam uh, about Malira Company, so you can ping me on that. I've had people all around the world ask me about that um, about that deck. Uh, I'm very happy to share information on that. Awesome. And we'll have a few links in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Brad, thank you so much for having me over and sitting down with me today. Yeah, thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everyone, for joining me and Brad for Snack Time. Brad shares with us his detailed write-up about Abzan Company. There's a link in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Also, I've got a pic of those spicy fish crackers Brad and I were munching on. Thanks to all the listeners for making it through our snack time with us chewing in your ear. And I didn't do any audio editing magic on those crunching sounds. They were real. If you're enjoying the show, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Here's something cool. For everyone that becomes a Patreon supporter this week, I'm going to send you a bag of those spicy fish crackers so you can munch along while listening to Kitchen Table Magic. No, really, I'm going to send you a bag of those magical fish crackers. Also, an update on the tokens. I found a token that I'd like to make for you. I'm working on them, and I'll be keeping you updated as I can. I know you're going to love them. Okay, so head on over to patreon.com slash kitchen table magic and become a supporter. Thank you again to my Patreon supporters, Marcus and Brian. You are both wonderful. Now, just a quick announcement. You may or may not have heard, but last weekend, Premier Magic cosplayer Christine Sprankle made a video asking the community for help. I auctioned off a near-mint force of will from alliances that I've been saving to benefit her. We raised $100. I want to thank the winning bidder, Michelle, for your amazing generosity. That force of will has been meticulously packaged by yours truly and is now on your way in the mail. Also, shout out to Yoa Kim and Zemet Sells Magic for also putting in bids. A big thank you to everyone that helped boost the signal with their likes, shares, and retweets of the auction. 
And if you're a fan of Christine Sprankel, listen to my interview with her back in season one, episode two. And please, if you're interested in supporting Christine's amazing cosplay, please head over to patreon.com slash csprankelrun. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this week's show. I'm always here to chat and answer your questions. Email me, sam at kitchentablemagic.org. I'm also on facebook.com slash kitchentablemagicpodcast and on Twitter at ktmpodcast. You'll find me tweeting and posting random pictures about things I'm cooking, things I'm eating, or things I have photoshopped. Please share the show with your friends. It's on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and on mtgcast.com. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. <laughs> okay, and uh, you win. I mean, you win, right? That's that's how history went down. You won. Mm-hmm. What were you feeling with the hand extended? What were you feeling at that point? Uh, just a big sigh of relief. I, I was so new to magic, professional magic at that point, I still had no idea what winning a pro tour meant. It, I knew it was a big deal, I just didn't know all the tangible benefits that would come along with it. I was just very happy to have played reasonably good magic over the weekend. I'm talking to Platinum Pro Jia Chen Tao. JC won Pro Tour Oath of the Gate Watch with the innovative Blue-Red Eldrazi deck. It was a modern Pro Tour and shortly after spawned the Eldrazi Winter. No pun intended. <laughs> JC is a formidable player on the GP and Pro Tour circuit. He's best known for his performances in Constructed, but JC actually has a background in Limited. You'll hear all this and more, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic with Jia Chen Tao. <laughs>